Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, thanks for downloading this latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. Before we start listening, though, I'd ask you guys a favor to please support the podcast in any way that you can. And by that, I mean remembering BFIT, that old acronym, where B is for the blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. E is for email, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com. F is for Facebook, where you'll find the Facebook page under the same name. We're nearly at 2,000 likes. I is for iTunes. If you leave a review and you rate the podcast and subscribe on iTunes, it really helps the algorithm and it makes us appear more famous and popular than we actually are. And T, of course, tell anyone or anything, whichever you prefer, and spread this podcast's name by word of mouth. Another final few things you could do that I can't seem to fit into when Diplomacy Fails' as BFIT acronym is to check out the YouTube channel also called When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, and get a few views up there. I'm going to try and go around to getting a third video done, but they do take a bit of work, so when I get to it, I will make a third one. But there's already two videos up there, so I'm sure if you're in any way interested in When Diplomacy Fails, you'll find all that stuff very interesting as well. When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, check it out on YouTube. Other than that, guys, thanks for stopping by. I hope you enjoy this episode. If this is your first ever episode of When Diplomacy Fails, I hope I don't scare you away and that you'll listen to the previous few episodes on this, the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, the Second Anglo-Dutch War, Episode 3. Last time we looked at Charles II's development in exile, his lifelong dream to return home, and his eventual journey to Dover. In this episode, we'll examine his entry, his majesty, and the beginnings of his reign. Within this episode, you should be able to get to grips with Charles' beginnings, what the people of the realm thought of him and hoped for him, and how the British could so willingly have a king back after executing this same king's father only a decade before. I also should mention that I've been handed a few corrections from the last episode. They kind of revolve around pronunciation, which is not surprising because it's me, but I think I should take a moment to talk about Worcester. Worcester, or Worcester as I pronounced it, 
was a battle in 1651, which Charles lost and fled from. And for some reason, I pronounced it horrendously wrong. I'd just like to clarify, I know that it's pronounced Worcester, but I managed to pronounce it wrong because it was half six in the morning and I was recording before I went to work because that's how dedicated I am. And I just, I don't know, my brain just was on autopilot and I completely said it wrong. It's just funny because in our house we have Worcester sauce, which is spelt Worcestershire sauce, and I used to laugh at people habitually and say that it's so funny because some people who don't know any better pronounce this really, really wrong. And there I went and pronounced it really, really wrong. But there you go. These things happen very early in the morning. I'd just like to clarify... I did know that it was called Worcester. Anyway. Also, Samuel Pepys is actually Samuel Pepys, apparently. Which, that I did not know, and I feel like it seems completely wrong, but I have been told by numerous reliable sources that his name is in fact Samuel Pepys and not Samuel Pepys. So, as wrong as that feels to say, I will say it anyway. Okay, so, without further ado, let's get you to the episode. I will now take you to the 25th of May, 1660. Something as curious as the monarchy won't survive unless you take account of people's attitudes. After all, if people don't want it, they won't have it. Prince Charles. The weather had held, and the journey had been a calm one. In stark contrast to the relaxed weather, those within the ships were overcome with excitement and a sense of expectation. The decade-long journey was about to come to an end, and as the flotilla approached Dover, the noise from the shore became louder. The cliffs of Dover were crammed not with boisterous soldiers clamouring to arrest the arriving party, as some sceptics had feared, but with adoring crowds of revellers eager to welcome their king home. At 3pm on the 25th of May, 1660, Charles II set foot on home soil as king for the first time. He dropped to his knees and thanked God for such divine fortune and mercy, and when he rose upright he was greeted with a series of well-prepared deputations. Foremost among them was General George Monk, the man who had made the restoration possible when he elected to use his army not to shore up a republic, but to create the circumstances for the free parliament to call back their exiled king. Monk knew now that there could be no going back. The republic, the commonwealth, the Cromwellian system, all of it was to be replaced by the old order, by the secure and reliable system of monarchy. Monk walked with Charles up the beach, sheltered by a canopy prepared for just such a stroll. The mayor of Dover presented Charles with a Bible, which the new king accepted graciously, 
declaring it the thing he loved above all things in the world, though returning home to such a jubilant procession would certainly have come a close second. Onlookers wept with joy and waved their loose rags at the king with the hope of getting his attention. Shouts of adoration for his majesty rang out as gunshots sounded in the distance. The beacons had been lit all across the coast, signalling not an invasion, but a return. Bonfires added to the smoke and lighted cheer as the afternoon gave way to evening and the onlookers were swollen by nearby inhabitants, scarcely able to control themselves. Into a coach destined to bring them to London, Charles and Monk sat facing forward, towards the capital, while James, Duke of York, and the younger brother Henry sat opposite them. The correctness and ceremonial-like travel arrangement was interrupted by a sudden bang in the back of the carriage, and the news that the Duke of Buckingham had just jumped on board. Charles would have sighed. The Duke of Buckingham had once been a determined ally and friend to the Royalist cause, but after fleeing following the Battle of Worcester in September 1651, the two had become more distant. Where once Charles had depended on Buckingham for his lively manner and mischievous antics, he had become frustrated with him over money problems, and aghast with his behaviour over rumours of his attempted courtship of his sister Mary, widow of the late William II, Prince of Orange. Buckingham had also become far less concerned with religious convictions than Charles, and seemed willing to sacrifice any personal beliefs for the sake of material gain. This had been demonstrated, Charles believed, with the repeated tales of his overtures to the Scots and his promises to convert to Presbyterianism should the Scots help him claw back his confiscated estates. Since the Battle of Worcester, Charles had barely spoken to Buckingham, and the two had become somewhat estranged. To Charles, Buckingham had become something of a nuisance, but he was also a reminder of his troubled past. In his darkest hour, Charles had once relied on the likes of Buckingham for help and encouragement. Now that he had returned home, Charles perhaps knew deep down that he could not forget Buckingham's service, even if he didn't want to necessarily be seen with him at that moment. But Charles would also have known, as his coach set off for London that evening, that Buckingham was far from the only duke, gentleman, lord or socialite that would seek his attentions again after all these years. To those individuals, many of whom were sons of those that had fought and lost everything for the royalist cause, Charles's return suggested a new beginning. It was not hard to be positive. Jenny Oglow in her book, A Gambling Man, Charles II and the Restoration, noted the feelings of the country on his return. The old king had been killed in the winter chill at the dead, dark turn of the year. The new king had come in the warmth of the spring, like life revived. He was a king of the May, the month of his birthday, the month of his return. He was young and virile. He would make the land fertile, bring plenty and peace. On the way, as in a folk tale, he summoned and conquered armies, but with smiles, not with swords. This reveals a fact which Buckingham's sudden reattachment to Charles's side already suggested. Though they were happy for his return, they expected great things from him as well. If Charles wanted to ensure that his bloodless coup continued to be a success, 
he would have to ally himself with friends of both his father and of Cromwell, not just for strategic reasons, but also for the sake of national healing. In a significant church service in a crumbling Canterbury Cathedral, Charles named four new members of the Order of the Garter. General Monk was first, Charles said, for your famous actions in military commands, and above all that by your wisdom, courage and loyalty, you have acted principally in our restoration without effusion of blood, acts that have no precedent or parallel. Charles then appointed another Cromwellian servant, whom he christened the new Earl of Sandwich, and balanced this out with the elevation of two prominent royalists. Charles would spend two full days in Canterbury conversing with the people, diplomatically waving his wand of forgiveness and tolerance, and charming those present with his wit and warmth. These were important practice runs before the main event of London, and Charles soon resumed his travels in his forward-facing coach, accompanied yet again by Monk, James, Henry and the Klingon Buckingham. Rumour had it that Charles and Buckingham had been seen conversing in private, and that the latter had begged the king for his forgiveness and asked for his mercy, as times had been so hard. Charles, it seemed, found it hard either to forget Buckingham's old deeds or his old friend's sense of humour, and the two seemed to at least be on speaking terms again. He would need all the allies he could muster, as a deputation from the House of Lords and House of Commons awaited. It was here that Charles could make his most symbolic gestures and declare his most noble intentions, as Parliament and Crown sought to heal their old wounds and coexist side by side once more. As the carriage rumbled on towards London, the clock struck twelve. It was now the 29th of May 1660, and Charles II's 30th birthday. As a birthday present... Charles would have to come face to face with the institution that had brought about his family's downfall, the army. When Charles had arrived in Dover, he had been guarded throughout his journey by some of the most elite units of soldiers that the Commonwealth had created, and herein lay the problem. Charles must have been uneasy at the notion of his security depending on individuals who had once sought to kill him. Times had changed and Parliament itself had instructed the former New Model Army to guard their king and ensure his procession to London went smoothly, but was this enough? Historian Joyce Lee Malcolm in her article, Charles II and the Reconstruction of Royal Power, provides a striking account not just of how Charles and his officials managed to rebuild what they had lost in the past, but of how tenuous and in some sense dangerous Charles's position was. Despite the fanfare and the obvious affection for their king, doubters and evildoers were bound to lurk in the background. This much was to be expected. What posed a problem for Charles was balancing the gripes of his enemies with the expectations of allies. In other words, the art of making everyone happy. As Malcolm explains, this would be far from an easy task. The past disaffection of his subjects and army and the power of parliament were only the most obvious of the challenges awaiting the new king. Somehow his regime had to still political and religious dissension and satisfy sharply conflicting expectations. Presbyterians and radical Protestant dissenters, for example, 
relied upon the king's generous pardon and promise of religious toleration, while former royalists wanted recompense for years of hardship endured on the king's account and the pleasure of punishing those who had lorded it over them since the old king's surrender. It was these former royalists who were the first to become disenchanted. They may have been the first to become disenchanted, but they were not the first group to pose a threat. That honour went to the aforementioned army, which Charles met just outside London on his way there to address Parliament. In a tense scene, 30,000 soldiers assembled under the orders of General Monk, who now had the power to lead the king into an almighty trap and seize command of the realm, or to symbolically sacrifice his major power base in the name of the king. Fortunately for Charles, Monk chose the latter. As Roundheads gazed at their former enemies and the men that they had once chased out of the British Isles, they began to lay down their arms in unison. After a short time and a quick speech, these men then picked their arms back up. From this moment, the claim went, these former soldiers of the Republic were now soldiers of the King. They may now have been under his command, but he knew that he could neither trust them deep down nor afford to pay them with any more unpopular taxes. A forgotten story of the Restoration era is the quiet demobilisation of the new model army, as its soldiers filtered back into society and took up normal jobs, apparently abandoning their old lies of excitement and sedition against the crown for good. As Malcolm explains, though, part of Charles's quest to ensure his crown's security lay in the man's desire to establish a kind of armed force of his own. Standing armies remained taboo, so Charles looked instead into the militia option. Militias had been a common aspect of medieval England and of Europe for centuries, but in the years since the House of Stuart had taken the throne, militias became more disorganised, less well-defined and less necessary upon the eruption of the Civil War. Militia barracks were only beginning to be cut back when the first blows of the Civil War were heard, so if Charles wanted to create a new militia force to supplement his lack of security, it was going to take a lot of work. A lot of work and, of course, a lot of money. Money for soldiers was something that only the Parliament was supposed to be able to approve. Charles could argue, and he did, that militia were technically not soldiery, but citizens prepared for civil defence and the maintenance of law and order. But this issue would remain a difficult early topic of disagreement for the first few years of Charles's reign, as the Parliament sought to keep its own prerogatives and Charles attempted to circumvent them. Keeping with the theme of circumventing Parliament for the sake of his own defence, and in a gesture which proved that he didn't necessarily trust the militia he planned on creating to say impartial, Malcolm notes that Charles set up another force. This one was similar to the militia in some ways, except it would be notably more professional and completely separate from it. What was most significant of all, though, it would be made up by self-funded volunteers. How did Charles plan to actually persuade citizens loyal to him to put up their own monies in support of his regime and fight for him if needs be without pay? Well, as Charles himself explained, there existed many persons in the British Isles who, out of affection to our service and the peace of their country in these unsettled times, may voluntarily offer, for the present, assistance above their proportions. 
The wealthy royalists that remained now had the opportunity to prove their loyalties. They could contribute funds to Charles's private army. By creating this army effectively off the books, Charles was ensuring that he had his own power base, and that he or his descendants could never be chased out of the kingdom again. In essence, he had created his own new model army. It was just as zealous as those soldiers, but its passion lay for king, not parliament. It was to be just as professional, with leading nobles and veterans having a role in instructing and drilling it, but most significantly of all, it was to be free. No unpopular taxes would be necessary, and instead of pay, the soldiers would occupy privileged positions and would acquire the gratitude of the king. The background. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Details of Charles's preparations of militias and private armies were, of course, not public knowledge, and were certainly not on display as he made his triumphant entry into London in the evening of his birthday. Triumphant doesn't even begin to describe it. Though historians do debate Charles's actual popularity at this time, there is no denying that an absolute outpouring of adoration followed his entry into the British capital in late May 1660. The sun shone and flashed off the swords of those that guarded Charles, but it also reflected off the growing number of impromptu trumpeters, off the belt buckles and spurs of others, and off the polished window panes that seemed to light up the route. As the procession moved along the street from London's Guildhall towards Westminster, jugglers, merchants, children, the elderly, the infirm, the poor, the rich and the proud all joined in until a parade of 20,000 people followed Charles along. John Evelyn, a prominent gentleman and MP, was one who had been excluded from the Rump Parliament during its purge of late 1648. From the years afterwards, he had come to provide a series of withering critiques on the actions of first the Rump and then Cromwell's regime. Now he had come to attach himself to Charles's procession, and his accounts of Charles's experiences have long served as the official version of history for the period. He was certainly writing for the king's eyes and affection, but it is worth noting what he thought of Charles's triumphant entry nonetheless. He wrote, 
and all this without one drop of blood, and by that very army which rebelled against him. But it was the Lord's doing, for such a restoration was never seen in the mention of any history, ancient or modern, since the return of the Babylonian captivity, nor so joyful a day and so bright ever seen in this nation. After much fanfare, a crowd gathered near Whitehall, where Charles prepared to answer the speeches of welcome in the House of Lords. Fully aware of the weight of the occasion, Charles relaxed everyone by speaking in casual and passionate tones, saying, My lords, I am so disordered by my journey, and with the noise still sounding in my ears, which I confess was pleasing to me, because it expressed the affections of the people, as I am unfit at the present to make such a reply as I desire. Yet this much I shall say unto you, that I take no greater satisfaction to myself in this, my change, than that I find my heart readily set to endeavour by all means for the restoring of this nation to freedom and happiness, and I hope by the advice of my Parliament to effect it. In the first weeks of his arrival, Charles worked extensively on his image and reputation, seeking always to be seen and be present in popular life. By being in sight he could present his image as a man of the people, who, while still possessing the divine right to rule, maintained at the same time, by virtue of his good grace and mercy, an acceptance of the subjects as they were, rather than as they ought to be. He knew how to read people and years shut up from the public view and out of the public sight, where he would traipse around empty, drafty corridors and maintain a farcical court abroad, had taught him the importance of investing his energies into the kingdom. We could debate here whether he actually wanted to be loved or not, but it is more likely that, rather than seek his subject's approval out of a sense of longing or love, he simply understood the value of being their king. Charles knew well that his father may never have died had he learned to defer to the people, and of course to Parliament, with more regularity. Charles wanted to be the popular king because he wanted genuinely to bring the monarchy back into the people's hearts and minds, but also because he appreciated that this change would make everyone's jobs a lot easier. Part of improving the image of monarchy in general was done by propaganda. Official propaganda could be an effective weapon when it played on the concerns or beliefs of the people. For example, royal propaganda drew on beliefs of religion and myth, of custom, law and even magic. It perpetuated the idea that Charles was God's anointed, here to bring law and order to the realm and fulfil God's will therein. Such an image was greatly helped by a curious practice known as the King's Evil wherein the king was required to be present, literally for hours, as thousands of his subjects greeted him in person and presented themselves to be touched. It was believed that if the king touched a person afflicted by scrofula, a tubercular disease that manifested itself in the painful swelling of the lymph nodes, most notably on the neck, then they would be cured. Only a king was capable of such a miracle, because only a king possessed the divine power to bring such a healing about. Thus it could be seen as an important test. If it succeeded, then people would spread news of the king's power and his truly deserved reign. But if no miracle was experienced, then this could be seen as proof of his lack of virtue, or of his unfitness for the throne. 
a surprising amount was riding on this apparently ridiculous PR exercise. Charles recognised, of course, that a person was more likely to either proclaim their own healing or give him the benefit of the doubt if they had reason to like him from the beginning. And thus, up until the point that the king's evil took place, sermons were preached, pamphlets heavily produced, and horrendous poems constructed, emphasising the likability of the king and of the sanctity of the monarchy. These foundational exercises had the desired effect. When hundreds visited Charles on the first day in the open air in mid-June 1660, the vast majority could loudly proclaim that they had been healed, and that a miracle had been bestowed upon them by God's anointed. In the first two months of his reign it is estimated that Charles touched nearly 2,000 people, so it's a wonder he wasn't infected himself. Sometimes the common man got too close, for comfort of course. One more amusing account was given by court gentleman John Aubrey, who recalled how one visitor to the king was afflicted by a fungus nose and had said that the king's hand would cure him, and on the first coming of Charles II into St. James's Park, he kissed the king's hand and rubbed his nose with it, which disturbed the king, but cured him. Charles, to give him his due, both appreciated the propaganda value of what he was doing, and was well able to handle himself among the common people. The many dispatches of the Venetian ambassador recalled in gradually reducing horror how Charles would frequently appear with his head uncovered in public, something which the protocol-laden European officials took some time to get used to. But to Charles this was a product of his upbringing. He was unable to feign the formal ceremonies of his father in some respects, and rather than force it, he decided to simply be himself. Charles's days were filled with excessive workloads. He tended to rise early, roughly 5am, play two hours or more of hot, sweaty games of tennis, which was his all-time fave as a sport, and then have brekkie before settling into the duties of a royal, to be finished by late afternoon when he could enjoy the true benefits of power. He was rarely alone when it came to the late afternoons, most notably his love of female attentions grew, as his ability to seduce grew, and he soon had a regular revolving door of mistresses. In a bid to stifle such dangerous behaviour and focus his mind on more savoury ideas, many in Charles's court that came from the previous generation urged Charles to take a wife, and did pledge him to marry for the sake of strategy and alliance among Europe's growing royal families. First, though, he wanted to enjoy the trappings of power. Charles and his brother walked daily in St. James's Park, the large open green into which numerous trees, vegetables and exotic fruits were maintained, and investment was poured in as a canal was dug in the autumn of 1660, and the incredible animals sent as gifts from foreign dignitaries were kept as amusements. The relaxed style of socialising in the park with his mistresses, favourites or relatives was a theme that extended to fashion as well. Where once it had been an offence or a source of ridicule to wear an overtly showy item of clothing or accessory, now times had changed. From France came a new passion for wigs, which country gentlemen maintained and bought in the thousands as they dominated the fashion scene. Before long, wigs became a status symbol, and the more realistic the better. Wigs were designed to mimic the tumbling locks of the king, 
but there was a serious amount of choice. Locks to cover the neck and ears, the option to fix the wig to your hat, the option to add knots, bobs or curls in crisped, even patterns. Basically, it was the precursor of the man bun, and it was just as horrendous to some critics in Charles's time as the man bun is to me now. One renowned author of the era, Randall Holm, criticised what he referred to as counterfeit hair by presenting the trend as a thing much used in our days by this generation of men, contrary to our forefathers who got estates, loved their wives, and grew their own hair. But extravagant hair wasn't the only change in style. Men wore beaver fur hats, ostrich feathers, bee-ribboned shoes, and loose-topped boots. Short doublets, or even open tunics made of extravagant linen, would flow down to wide-legged trousers, garnished and tied together with yards of ribbons. Charles had ensured by his arrival that such trends would return in force, as individuals seemed to unleash all the passions for clothing that they had hidden over the last decade in single, ridiculous outfits, but Charles himself was normally more reserved. The king dressed elegantly and formally, and made up in wit, charm and personality what he lacked in pomp and material grandeur, so that one was always aware that he was the centre of attention, that he was the king. Charles's personality ensured that the formality and magic of his reign would collide with his own court's fashion, intrigue and liberty, but in the initial first few months, he seemed capable of balancing the two, and creating a viable power base, as we've seen, through less public means of insurance. While he and his parliament could never be guaranteed to see eye to eye on every occasion, Charles did seem to value the time spent in discussion with his MPs. He wanted their respect and approval above all, and he did seek where possible to accommodate their grievances. Unfortunately for Charles, he was regularly pulled in different directions thanks to the religious legacy of the civil wars, which had left a lot of vengeful Anglicans in the two houses, a lot of defensive Presbyterians in Scotland, and a lot of furious, bitter Catholics in Ireland, not to mention a lot of independents, dissenters, Puritans and others in between. Despite these religious clouds, Charles did make time for some leisurely pursuits. When out walking his dogs in St. James's Park, Charles returned to notice that one of them was missing. Immediately, he took to the Mercurius Publicus, a weekly news bulletin read by the people. The message in the weekly read, The dog is black, between greyhound and spaniel, no white about him, only a streak on his breast, and tail a little bobbed. It is his majesty's own dog, and doubtless was stolen. Whoever finds him may acquaint any at Whitehall, for the dog was better known at court than by those who stole him. Will they never leave robbing his majesty? Must he not keep a dog? Jenny Uglo believes that such a witty tone was not that of a self-important monarch. According to one courtier, Charles was so affable in his daily walks that he would pull off his hat to the meanest. This very affability, according to Uglo, meant that when he chose to take on his majesty, his dignity was even more striking and effective. Charles understood the language of gesture and the old forms of kingship, but it was clear to all who watched him that his personal style was something quite new. 
Something not quite new about Charles was the reputation he began to accrue for womanising. Reportedly it got so bad because Charles's very court began to replicate his activities. As David Scott in his book Leviathan, The Rise of Britain as a World Power, explains. Inevitably, the court took its moral tone from Charles, and was consequently one of the most profligate and sleazy of any in Europe. No man could any kind of figure there without whoring, gambling, swearing, drinking and fighting jewels, preferably to excess. It was not a flattering portrayal, and the likes of Jenny Uglow seek to balance this behaviour with Charles's undoubted abilities for administration, and his genuine desire to tolerate other belief systems and patch up old wounds. David Scott does this as well, but I feel he is more realistic about the king than Uglow. If we accept that every monarch as a human being has their weaknesses, some were afflicted with much vanity, some were breathtakingly cruel, others were frustratingly lazy, then Charles's want for lusting after every new pretty young thing that entered into his court doesn't seem as bad in the grand scheme of things, does it? For one, the exploits of Charles and his court created, in the words of David Scott, an outpouring of some of the worst poetry in the English language. Jokes inserted into poems or short verses suggestively employing imagery involving significant parts of Charles's body form much of the theme, if you catch my drift. It wasn't just that venereal diseases were rife in the closed circle of courtiers, or that mistresses frequented the place, or that Charles's dogs reportedly relieved themselves wherever they pleased. These things certainly reduced the esteem in the court of the eyes of foreign observers, but what did Charles's loose morals say about his ability to rule? David Scott wrote that the impact was more serious than the pleasure-filled activities may suggest. If he could not control his passions, wondered contemporaries, then how could he restrain his princely will? And then there was the huge cost of so many mistresses and royal bastards, what the Puritan John Milton called the vast and lavish price of our subjection and their debauchery. As his principal minister, Sir Edward Hyde, created the Earl of Clarendon in 1660, told him, The excess of pleasures which he indulged to himself had already lost very much of the affection and reverence the nation had for him. Though the last few years had been tough at home, what the public had appreciated about Cromwell was that he had raised Britain's military reputation in the eyes of its rivals. In a court atmosphere of duels on a regular basis, where one's honour was said to be at stake for the most trivial of exercises, it is little surprise to see the code seeping into the day-to-day business of foreign policy. Cromwell had been harsh, cold even, but he had at least solidified Britain's reputation as a Protestant militarist bulwark against any potential enemies. Ironically, while the sentiments towards proving British arms abroad may have been favourable, the price of such regular conflicts were not at all popular. The people of course wanted it both ways, military reputation without the cost. If Charles was listening to their whims, he wasn't taking much notice, though he had begun to think seriously, by late 1660, about the need for a wife. While looking for potential matches on the continent, the House of Stuart chose not a Hohenzollern, not a Bourbon, not a Habsburg, and not even a Romanov. Instead, they chose a Braganza. 
Braganza was the formerly ducal family that had fought a series of conflicts against Spain, only to find themselves thrust to the forefront of the Portuguese state with the resumption of war between Portugal and Spain in 1640. After 60 years of union under Spanish direction, since Philip II's Iberian Union creation of 1580. The Union waned in popularity as the fortunes of war and the costs of it went in opposite directions, and the belief grew that Portuguese markets were bearing all the brunt and getting none of the benefits. The House of Braganza was chosen to lead Portugal out of this slump, but to do so it had to fight against its larger and stronger neighbour, and to do this it needed help. For years, the Franco-Spanish War meant that it was French help which ensured Portuguese resistance to Spain continued, but with the signing of the Peace of the Pyrenees in 1659, Portugal was suddenly on its own. The Portuguese king, John IV, known as John the Restorer, had died in 1656, but his offspring ensured that Portugal possessed a few convenient cards to play with in the realm of royal marriages. The new Portuguese king, Alfonso VI, married into the House of Savoy, while John IV's daughter Catherine became Charles's bridal candidate. Charles's decision to marry Catherine of Braganza and thus tie Britain to Portugal offended Spain and surprised the French, but Charles had his reasons, reasons which were woven into the fabric of the European system, and reasons which we'll examine in the next episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 